Kent Beck is a legendary figure in the world of software engineering. Kent was an early advocate of test-driven development, or TDD, and he popularized the idea of writing unit tests before writing code that could satisfy those unit tests. A unit test isolates and tests a small piece of functionality within a large piece of software. Practitioners of test-driven development write tens or hundreds of tests in order to cover a large variety of cases that could potentially occur within their software. When Kent Beck joined Facebook in 2011, he was 50 years old, and he thought he had seen everything in the software industry. During Facebook Bootcamp, Kent started to realize that Facebook was very different than any other company he had seen. Facebook Bootcamp is the six-week onboarding process that every new hire learns about the software practices of the company through. After graduating from Facebook Bootcamp, Kent began to explore Facebook's code base and culture. He found himself rethinking many of the tenets of software engineering that he had previously thought were immutable. Kent joins the show to discuss his time at Facebook and how the company's approach to building and scaling products thoroughly reshaped his beliefs about software engineering. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call on to help me find a developer who can build the first version of my product. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile engineers who you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product, like me, or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent that you need to accomplish your goals. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i to learn more about what G2i has to offer. We've also done several shows with the people who run G2i, Gabe Greenberg and the rest of his team. These are engineers who know about the React ecosystem, about the mobile ecosystem, about GraphQL, React Native. They know their stuff and they run a great organization. In my personal experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget. And the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works. They can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack. And you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i to learn more about G2i. Thank you to G2i for being a great supporter of Software Engineering Daily, both as listeners and also as people who have contributed code that have helped me out in my projects. So if you want to get some additional help for your engineering projects, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i. Kent Beck, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. You joined Facebook in 2011. What did you initially do with the company? So uh, toward the end of 2010, I got a call from a recruiter at this company, Facebook, which was like, it was known to be very successful, but it wasn't like a thing, especially in the engineering world. And I went and interviewed and I saw an engineering culture that was very, very different than anything that I had seen before. And so I, my last interview of the day was with Mike Schrepfer and I said, 
you know, this, this culture really is unique, but maintaining it and evolving it is going to be hard work. And I would like to come and do that. So my initial pitch to the company was as kind of a culture carrier, amplifier, observer, commenter, tweaker. What makes you say that the Facebook culture as of 2011 would be hard to scale? So what was clearly going to be hard to scale was avoiding mean reversion. So it was 2,000 employees total, 700 engineers. It was obviously going to grow very quickly as these things do in the Valley. And a bunch of the people they were going to hire in would be coming in from the Googles and Microsofts of the world and would bring a very different set of values and a very different set of practices. And so it would be the natural tendency would be for Facebook engineering culture to just revert to the kind of the least common denominator, which everybody seems to like that's that's the attractor. Everybody falls back into lots of planning and long cycles and more handoffs and bigger batches and all the stuff that makes short-term, small-scale sense and that kills long-term effectiveness. Talk about that in more detail. It sounds like you have a perspective that there's some kind of overly process-laden engineering structure that is endemic to companies as they get big. Yeah, and not even as they get big. So sometimes they start out that way, which really astonishes me. Why would you put the shackles on before you dove into the pool the first time? That doesn't make any sense. But every software process has to be shaped by context. And Facebook's context was in some ways absolutely unique because you had this scaling component that was just insane, trying to make computers do things that they had never done before in terms of the number of people and the amount of data and so on. But they, at the same time, they were still exploring the space of, of what uh, social media interaction looked like. And so they were going to simultaneously have to solve these difficult engineering problems and continue to efficiently explore this gigantic space of all the possible social interactions you could mediate with a computer. That was the context. And I think every startup deals with that first part where you're exploring some space and you need to find a niche that is is uniquely yours. You have to find that engine of growth. And efficiently exploring that space is a very different task than making incremental improvements. But people fall back on the sort of tactics, strategies, and value systems that are suited for incremental improvements. Okay, so, so let me take a step back. So I see this place, it's crazy, it looks like a clown show, and yet things are working really well. You know, they weren't doing the things in my books. I like to joke, I don't mind if people don't do the stuff in my books, I just want them to fail. So they, they weren't doing that, and my first thought is, you know, I'll come in and explain how, how this stuff works. In the back of my mind, there is this mystery of this bumblebee. Like, in theory, this process should be a disaster. And in practice, it's working extremely well at, this, at two things at the same time, at 
scaling and at exploration. So I wanted to figure that that out. So the first hackathon, you could sign up to give classes. And this was during boot camp. I hope somebody's explained boot camp. Yes, they have. Okay. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll give a class on test-driven development, you know, because here I am and I can nobody's do using TDD. So, well, of course, they'll want to uh, you know, learn from me. And the, in the sign-up sheet, I went and checked just before I left. I went and checked the, the old, old wiki, and <laughs> the evidence is still there. The class just before mine on the list of classes was about advanced techniques in Excel, and it was, abs- it was full, and there was a wait list. And the class just after mine was on Argentinian Tango, and it was full, and there was a wait list. And I had zero people sign up for my class. And I thought... Well, how am I going to have any impact here? People don't listen to me. So I deliberately chose to forget everything I knew about software engineering. I just said, I'm, I'm going to try and be a programmer and I'm going to watch what people do. I'm just going to copy what they do. And if somebody says this is two diffs instead of one, it'll be two diffs. And if somebody says you need tests for this, I'll write tests. And if they say you don't need tests for that, why are you writing tests? Then I won't write tests. Even if I think that's, you know, my, the, the, that's the, the natural thing to do. That's the only way, one, that I was going to be able to explore this mystery of how this software engineering process worked. And two, is the only way that I was going to have any influence. Because clearly nobody was going to listen to me based on, on reputation. The tension that you're describing, this arises from the tension between maintenance, the maintaining of an existing software product that's working and exploring new ideas, the tension manifests because when you're a business like Facebook and you develop a newsfeed product and a messenger product and an ads product, and all these things are having a lot of success, there are natural pressures to put a bunch of engineers on the maintenance of those products and the expansion of those, the, the gradual, slow, iterative expansion of those products. And you should do that. You should maintain them. You should improve them. But at the same time, when you have such a greenfield opportunity like Facebook, the greenfield opportunity being social interaction on the internet mediated by real identity, you do want to con- continue to explore those new ideas. How were those tensions being resolved? How, you know, as you solved the mystery over your seven years there, what was Facebook doing to resolve that tension? Sure. So it took me five years to parse it out. I spent the first almost a year working on privacy and on messaging backend and discovered that I was probably the worst C++ programmer at Facebook I got a bad review. It was clear that just trying to sling code was not my differential advantage there. So I started coaching. I had done a fair amount of one-on-one coaching with engineers before. There were no coaches at Facebook, but I could see that there were engineers with tons of unrealized potential and because Facebook was solving unprecedented problems, there was no way they could hire somebody to solve them. They had a big bunch of the technical horsepower had to be generated in-house. 
I started this coaching program called Good to Great and began working with engineers one-on-one. Ended up coaching, I don't know, maybe 150 or 200 engineers personally. The program matched up other senior engineers with junior engineers who got more coaching. My students were demonstrably faster at getting promotions. They were twice as likely to get promoted in the year following coaching than their peers who didn't get coached, all other things being as much equal as as possible. So that was working, although it was odd to be, I was an insider, but I was also an outsider, right? Because I wasn't slinging a whole bunch of, of code. I was working with people and helping them do their jobs better. That gave me the the ability to work with engineers all over the code base, all over the organization, people in brand new stuff, people refining older, more established stuff, people in infrastructure. So I got to see uh, all over the code base. And it took, as I said, it took me five years before I realized okay, here's the structure that makes all this go. And this was not explicit, but the behavior matches very carefully. And, and it goes like this, that there are, there's a style of project that's really good at, at exploring for new engines of growth. And uh, you, ve- you have very little to lose in that moment. This is, this is where move fast and break things is exactly the right attitude to take. If you have nothing to lose, breaking something has no cost, so just go for it. So I call that the exploration phase. And you want to place as many bets as possible because you you can't analyze your way to success. Successful exploration is always a surprise, but it's not random. You're actively searching for this thing and then holy cow, like a uh, live Facebook live video was something that just took off like a rocket. But as soon as something takes off, the game changes, all the trade-offs change. And now you're in this vertical growth phase. And that vertical growth phase has its own set of rules, its own set of trade-offs. So I call that the expand phase, its own style of project management. Uh, That's where war rooms make a lot of sense, get everybody sitting together. It's a relatively brief period because you have to overcome one hurdle to growth after another, after another, after another, is very intense. That's the place where extra, that's the only place on this curve that extra hours actually makes any difference. And you come out of that expansion exhausted and you go into that, what we would call the growth teams, the extract part of the curve, where again, all the trade-offs change. Now you're at massive scale. Uh, while you're expanding, throwing money at problems makes perfect sense because you're at risk of failing entirely if you if you don't overcome some barrier. When you're extracting, now you've got tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of servers, and reducing the number of servers by 10% is a hugely profitable project for, for one programmer. While you're expanding, reducing the number of servers by 10%, you know, if you go from 20 to 18, like who cares? And you're, if you're doing that, you're not doing something else to actually scale it. So what I noticed is informally, projects in those three phases were managed completely differently. So 
a couple of people would peel off and just start trying stuff in some area that they were interested in. That's the explore phase. Something they did would take off and start start growing quickly, and then the infrastructure would fall over because it was a new some sort of new um, demand. People would join the project who didn't like trying out new things, but loved diving into hairy technical, unprecedented technical problems. So uh, Steve Grimm was an early, early Facebook engineer. is the first person that I, I met when I walked through the door at Facebook. And I talked with him about this. And he said, yeah, he just waited for the chance to have another unprecedented technical problem. But that expand phase was staffed differently, managed differently. Funding wasn't, I mean, that's its own own whole topic, but it was treated very differently. This would manifest, you would see a team go in for a Zuck review and come out, you know, bubbling in happy and ready to do the next thing. And a month later, they would go for a review and report that they'd been doing the same kind of stuff for another month since that was working and come out just looking like their dog died because they'd gotten reamed. Why are you still trying out all this stuff? This thing is working and its stall, its growth is stalling. Focus in on that. Well, it seemed kind of capricious at first. If Once I could step back and say, oh, the trade-off change. You've got this exploration phase, the expansion phase. If you don't notice that you've made the difference and you keep exploring and trying out this and that, you miss the opportunity to expand. And underneath... As a, as a kind of an unspoken structure, this explore, expand, extract was going on all the time. This culture of engineering at Facebook, is there something unique about Facebook that allows that culture to work with, for the Facebook set of products? Or would this work for any company, for any set of products? So Facebook 2017 is a very was a very different beast than or 2018 when I left than 2011 when I joined. I think the things this uh, balance between exploring and extracting, as you said, that's that's a universal. And, and and once you've gone through that curve once, the natural tendency of everybody is to treat all projects like extract projects. But the really successful companies feedback into more explore projects and keep treating them as a special as a different kind of project so kpis for example is a great thing to have in extract uh, you you know what the levers are you know if you increase this by four percent that goes down by six percent or whatever and that's fine kpis in in Explore don't make any sense whatsoever. I talked to uh, an ads uh, manager who is really frustrated. Facebook's very metrics-oriented company. He said, either my projects show zero improvement or a thousand X of what our goal was. And that's very characteristic of Explore projects. It's really binary and, and if somebody says to you, well, we'll get a 20% ROI on this completely speculative project, they're just lying. 
either this is going to give you zero or it's going to be spectacular. And then you have to move into this expand style to find out how spectacular. GitLab Commit is GitLab's inaugural community event. GitLab is changing how people think about tools and engineering best practices. And GitLab Commit in Brooklyn is a place for people to learn about the newest practices in DevOps and how tools and processes come together to improve the software development lifecycle. GitLab Commit is the official conference for GitLab. It's coming to Brooklyn, New York, September 17, 2019. If you can make it to Brooklyn on September 17th, mark your calendar for GitLab Commit and go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash commit. You can sign up with code COMMITSED, that's C-O-M-M-I-T-S-E-D, and save 30% on conference passes. If you're working in DevOps and you can make it to New York, it's a great opportunity to take a day away from the office. Your company will probably pay for it. And you get 30% off if you sign up with code COMMITSED. There are great speakers from Delta Airlines, Goldman Sachs, Northwestern Mutual, T-Mobile, and more. Check it out at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash commit and use code COMMITSED. Thank you to GitLab for being a sponsor. Let's go back to that depiction of the team that builds a new feature and they go into a Zuck review and the the first time they go into the, the Zuck review, the review is, is fantastic. They've built something new. It's gaining traction. And the, the second time they come into a Zuck review, maybe a month later, they've been doing the same thing. It's working, but the review is not as positive. <laughs> help, help me, help me understand. Like, what what exactly are you referring to there? Is there like some kind of adjustment that that a team needs to make when a product is working? Do they need to put it on maintenance mode? Do they need to start trying other new things? What's what's going on in that in that ah, shift? I see. So uh, no, they don't need to put it into maintenance mode, and no, they no, don't need to explore mo- more. What they need to do is. To take a live video as, as an example, it launched. It was far more successful than than people expected, and it put new strains on the infrastructure. I mean, at that point, Facebook had fantastic infrastructure, but even at that, live video was not – like the latency was too long. The number of successful connections or the percentage of successful connections was too low. And yet, there were people on the team who wanted okay. Now we who wanted to continue exploring, and so I had a, a conversation with folks on the team. I said, no, well, "Hang on, the, the the game has changed. This is not about finding the next feature that might drive growth. You already have the feature that's driving growth, but the infrastructure is impeding that growth. So." You need to say, yes, we will get to all those cool exploratory features when the time comes. But right now, we just have to make what we're doing work. And if that means cutting features 
or uh, artificially reducing the demand for the product in order to get over the next scaling barrier, then, then that's what we'll do. Another analogy that I use is it's as if you're playing soccer and then uh, the referee blows the whistle and out comes this oblong ball and your opponents trot off the field and this new opposing team comes on and now you're playing rugby. Well, if you keep playing by soccer rules, you're just going to get crushed. So you have to adapt. And, and that, was the, that was the moment. There was a, the tension was, hey, we like trying crazy new features and launching a new feature every week. But when you, when you hit vertical growth, you have to attend to the vertical growth. That doesn't happen very often. That exploratory phase is profitable. You have a small chance of a big payoff. The extract phase is profitable because you have a large chance of a relatively small percentage-wise payoff. Expand is its own thing. And that's that's the, the thing that I learned at Facebook was there is a particular style. You, you've got a large – it's the only part of the product development cycle where you have a large chance of a large payoff. So punting an, an expansion phase is really, really expensive. One of the motivations for doing this series of interviews is to – Contrast the Facebook engineering culture to that of Google, because there's a a sense that the Facebook engineering culture was largely a replica of what Google did successfully or what Microsoft did successfully, but it's clearly its own distinct engineering culture. Yes. How how does Facebook engineering culture contrast with the previous successful tech giants? So I spent uh, most of the aughts on a goat farm in Southern Oregon. So I, I can't give you the insider view of that. I think the, the extreme programming was an attempt to get away from big upfront planning or to put it positively, to move decisions to where they could most effectively be made instead of piling them up in big batches either too early or too late. So one thing is uh, there's a myth about Google culture that Jeff Dean sits in a dark room and thinks really hard and then comes up with some amazing piece of infrastructure. <laughs> if you if you read – so I, I read the those early Google infrastructure papers with a lot of interest and the, the I think there was a, literally a paragraph in there that really caught my interest, which was we wrote three web crawlers. As soon as we finished one, it would – start to show signs that it was going to fall over. So we, we, would, we hacked together another one and another one. And then finally said, we have to solve these problems once and for all. So it, I don't believe that even Google, like the story is, oh, somebody just thinks really hard and then comes up with some big piece of infra. But I, I don't believe it. I, there's a lot of iteration. There's a lot of stuff that, that fails and gets replaced quickly. So, but the folks that I talk to now that are trying to create a culture from scratch, the, that mythology of, well, you know, think really hard about your infrastructure because you don't want to be in a position where you want to scale and you can't scale. Well, at what cost? If, if that means that you're going to explore that much more slowly, you're, 
you're just uh, putting the parking brake on your your product and your company. You're trying to drive and the, the brakes are on because you're slowing down. So at Facebook, it was very much explicitly, there was a poster at Facebook that said, nothing at Facebook is somebody else's problem. And that's the foundation of Facebook engineering culture. If you saw something, you wouldn't necessarily just go fix it because uh, you can't solve all the problems. But if you didn't, it's because you chose not to. So the way that played out in Explore Projects is if you needed a key value store for for your, and this is an actual example, if you needed a key value store, you would just y- write one of your own or you'd y- use one that you know was uh, was open source or something. So at one point there were four key value stores in production at scale at the same time. You might say, well that's inefficient. No, that enables efficient exploration. If all those teams were told, no, you have to wait for the corporate standard key value store to come out, the explorations wouldn't have happened. The expansions wouldn't have happened, and you wouldn't even get to the extract stage. Now, you got f- four key value stores, and they all have roughly the same API. So an infrastructure project to go from four to three is hugely profitable, right? You put four engineers on, you save 2,000 servers, that's super, and you go from three to two and two to one. By the time you've gone through that process, you have one really awesome key value store, and at the same time, you, you've been able to efficiently explore this gigantic and very valuable space of what all features could, could we be adding. You know, that reminds me of, of a question that I've, I haven't quite understood yet, which is why Facebook doesn't use public cloud infrastructure at all. And and I understand that Facebook was started, I think it went in 2005 or something, but before the cloud was a thing, uh, the cloud got started in 06 or 2007, somewhere around then. It didn't really reach maturity until probably, I don't know, 2011 or 2012. Mm-hmm. And by then, Facebook had really well-developed infrastructure. But even then, I would assume that there are useful cloud technologies to take off the shelf and use as as APIs or databases as a service. If Facebook was so open to exploring new technologies and picking up random key value stores, why haven't they adopted any cloud technologies? Because nothing works at that scale, at Facebook scale. Nothing off the shelf works at Facebook scale. If you buy networking equipment, Facebook is going to put that equipment through hell in a way that nobody else does. <laughs> just like, and, and and that is just, that's a consequence of working at this unprecedented scale. It, it wouldn't make sense for a vendor to make a product good enough for Facebook. Oh, no. <laughs> because they, they only have, uh, you know, they would only have three customers in the world. It's much better for them to have a product that's not quite as capable and they can sell to thousands of people. So how did Facebook, uh, I mean, I'm not sure if you're the person to ask, but since you kind of had a tour of the company, how did Facebook adapt to unprecedented scale? 
In the expand phase, in these vertical growth phases where you're hitting unprecedented unprecedented, uh, barriers to growth, they had the world's leading technical expert available to jump in. And this is another part of Facebook engineering culture that maybe a little subtle. So that person was working on some extract project that was very profitable. You know, so you're tuning some database, say, or or uh, improving some network equipment or something like that. That project they're working on is very profitable. And they, the, but that engineer hears, overhears somebody talking about whatever's failing about the hot new feature. And it's their responsibility, because nothing at Facebook is somebody else's responsibility. It's their responsibility to say, oh, I would like to work on that. And that engineer then says to their manager, hey, I'm going to go work on this. It's growing quickly. It's their manager's job then. Now, the, 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 your leading technical expert just told you that they're off the project to work on this thing, which even hasn't even achieved scale yet. It's just growing fast. It's that manager's job to say, oh, okay, good. Bring in the next uh, person. And to take over whatever important responsibilities that, that that expander just left behind in order to jump on the next uh, piece of, of scaling that otherwise wouldn't happen. Did that answer your question? Yeah, it does. So when you joined Facebook, my understanding is that around that time, Facebook really didn't have much testing. And it's kind of ironic because... You were the creator of extreme programming. It was highly dependent on the process of writing unit tests and then writing the features. Facebook clearly reversed that process and was able to be successful despite the fact that they wrote their features before they wrote their their tests. You, you often hear that you need unit tests in order to build things like continuous integration. Continuous integration lets you move much faster because you have this battery of unit tests that runs at every new build. But I, I don't think Facebook had that stuff until later. How was Facebook able to move so fast with such a low amount of unit testing? Yeah, so that was that was part of the puzzle when, when I arrived. One of those hey, this isn't what's in the books, and yet it seems to be working. And the answer that I came to is that while there's a a couple parts of it. One is, how many of your problems can you test for and how many problems only show up in production? So if if problems... Like if you're writing a simple calculation, but it might not scale in production, you, you can't write unit tests for it. So the Facebook answer is don't. So that's part of it is depending on the ratio of how many problems is it possible to test for before production versus after. If that ratio is skewed towards, hey, stuff only fails in production, then don't write any tests. The second part of the answer is tests are a form of feedback and Facebook engineers had many, many other forms of feedback. So you'd write on your development server and you'd try stuff out and then it would go through code review. That's a second form of feedback. 
And then it would, at that point, it would roll to the internal site. So you'd get more feedback from that. And then it would go through the deployment process where it would get rolled out to a small number of machines and then more and more. And you get feedback from that. And then uh, uh, logging and uh, like operational awareness was just part of the engineering culture. So you'd get feedback post-production of like how your feature actually was was behaving. So there's a bunch of feedback loops in place. Unit tests occupied for, for most development at Facebook, just the cost benefit, the, the amount of feedback they added and the timeless timeliness of the, that feedback and the cost of achieving that feedback just wasn't worth it. The, so in bootcamp, you're supposed to put pr- code into production the first week. And I was very careful to write tests and do everything properly. So I got in a fair amount of, of heat. I got a fair amount of heat because my first feature didn't land for three weeks. And people are like, well, you know, I don't, don't know how this is going to work out. Well, and I was I was wondering that too. I had a huge case of imposter syndrome when I when I landed at Facebook and realized just how different everything was. And then the tests that I had written broke almost immediately, and they were deleted. That was one of the things that surprised me. <laughs> if if you had if you had a test and it failed, but the site was up, they'd just delete the test. If you had tests that were uh, intermittent. That, that were non-deterministic, they were just deleted. And at first I was shocked, like, oh, delete a test. This is producing noise and it's not producing signal. If you eliminate this, this noise production, per definition, the situation is clearer all of a sudden. The fact that you kind of wish that you had a test for something, well, you didn't. And so, yeah, just chuck it and let's move on. Now you probably wouldn't want to take that approach to nuclear power plant software or electricity grid software. That seems like a practice that is uniquely useful for kind of early Facebook, where this thing wasn't yet a communications utility. It was more of a fun thing to do akin to television. So there, there's an, another th- uh, lesson I learned at Facebook is the difference between reversible and irreversible decisions. So if you if you roll out a feature in New Zealand, say, and people don't like it, and you can easily turn it off, th- then that's a reversible decision. Facebook engineering spent a lot of effort on Uh, making decisions reversible. Like sometimes you have to do quote unquote extra engineering to make a decision reversible. I talked with uh, one of the managers in the network infrastructure and he said, when they got a new piece of networking gear in and it went to the characterization labs just to like put it through its paces, they mostly didn't care about its performance. What they cared about was, can we turn this thing off safely? So, and, and that's an investment in reversibility. All the feature flag stuff. That was one of the lessons I had to learn. People in code reviews would say, oh, you definitely need to put this behind a feature flag. I'm like, what? Why? M- my attitude is, let me test it, make sure that it works, and then I'll just put it out. Well, the 
learned, hard learned wisdom there was that there's a bunch of stuff you can't test for. So yes, you have to introduce additional complexity to, to put the flags in, but if you don't, you're going to roll something out and the, your only recourse is going to be a hot fix rollout, which makes the release engineering grumpy and you did not want to make release engineering grumpy. What's the role of a manager at Facebook? So that changed a fair amount in the time I was there. When I got there, engineers all at all levels were expected to exercise a lot of initiative. There's a beautiful article by Yisheng Wang about Facebook's early engineering management philosophy. And I can't recall the, the title of it. Maybe we can find it later. But the, the upshot is... Facebook deliberately chose to make engineering easier and engineering management harder. If there was ever a trade-off, they would make the manager's life harder and the engineer's life and job easier. And so managers, the first role is to attract talent. A manager got a headcount allocation for their team, but that was really loosey-goosey in the early days. Just because you had allocation didn't mean you had engineers. You, you had to sell your project. And if you couldn't, then you didn't get any engineers and your, product, your project just didn't go anywhere. Nobody was going to force an engineer to work on your team. So the managers who had bad teams or they were bad managers, people would just go do something else. So managers t- tended to get weeded out quickly you know, in a way that I didn't expect to see. So a certain amount of arranging for technical collaboration. Again, it was on the engineers to organize their work together for the most part. And different managers were different. Some were more hands-on technically and some less so. To negotiate for headcount allocation and to and kind of career encouragement for uh, for engineers so advocating for engineers in the in the performance review process what distinguishes mark zuckerberg as a leader so i did not miss a, a weekly q and a for the first 4 or 5 years because something new for me would come out every week it's a combination of uh, and th- this is in fact, I never met him face-to-face in, in seven years there. So I can't I, – I don't have any of those good stories. This implicit understanding uh, that projects go through these three phases and w- taste for when to shift gears. Like when, when, is, when is something a blip and when is something a genuine evidence that this is worth expanding? There's a – sometimes it's – dead obvious and sometimes it isn't another is a willingness to abandon metrics that have served their purpose that was a big surprise to me okay time to interaction is good enough now don't let it slip but that's not the priority anymore i was used to the the monty python style where the most important metric is a and b the most important metrics are a b and c 
right? It, it would just get piled on and piled on. And so to see him stand up and, and say, yes, we have harped on this issue and we're not going to do that anymore, I thought was really remarkable. He's also very good at attracting very good people. So, so somebody who doesn't get talked about in the Facebook story is Jeff Rothschild, who was an, uh, the, the early adult supervision engineer, somebody exceedingly worth listening to. There's a f- fantastic video presentation that he gave that's only available inside of Facebook that I insisted all my students watch because it was just like, no, this is concentrated essence of engineering right here and you're not going to get this anyplace else. But he was attracted to this project. I think there's a kind of a, there, there's a kind of geek charisma to the way uh, Zuck presented. So engineers would not roll their eyes. Like I think there's a, uh, there's a knack to establishing a presence in a room full of engineers. And he definitely had that in space. Over the last few months, I've started hearing about Retool. Every business needs internal tools, but if we're being honest, I don't know of many engineers who really enjoy building internal tools. It can be hard to get engineering resources to build back-office applications, and it's definitely hard to get engineers excited about maintaining those back-office applications. Companies like DoorDash and Brex and Amazon use Retool to build custom internal tools faster. The idea is that internal tools mostly look the same. They're made out of tables and drop-downs and buttons and text inputs. Retool gives you a drag-and-drop interface so engineers can build these internal UIs in hours, not days. And they can spend more time building features that customers will see. Retool connects to any database and API. For example, if you want to pull in data from Postgres, you just write a SQL query. You drag a table onto the canvas. If you want to try out Retool, you can go to retool.com slash sedaily. That's R-E-T-O-O-L dot com slash sedaily. And you can even host Retool on-premise if you want to keep it ultra-secure. I've heard a lot of good things about Retool from engineers who I respect. So check it out at retool.com slash sedaily. So not every startup has the growth pressures and the opportunity that Facebook has, but there are definitely engineering practices that the average company can adopt from Facebook. What are those engineering practices? What should the average startup, the average company take away from Facebook? Yeah, my snap answer is nothing. People should figure out what their style is and do their style. So I, I've been t- talking about software process for a long, long time. And something I notice is there are people who are uncomfortable taking responsibility. And I'm one of those in my, in my not, not so sane moments. They want a process where they can say, well, hey, we executed the process. We failed, but 
you know, we, we executed the process. And I, I think losing that and realizing that there's no such thing as a technical success, that you're all in it together and that your process is your process and you should play with it. You should experiment with it. You should try out a bunch of ideas, but in the end, it needs to be yours. I think that's the, that's the real lesson. Facebook did that. They did things that weren't conventional, not because they were unconventional, but because it made sense in the Facebook context. And everybody should be doing that and not copying, you know, Spotify is the flavor of the month. Oh, well, let's copy this Spotify model. Well, Spotify didn't copy the Spotify model. So what makes you think copying is the right thing to do? That said, there are some intriguing engineering policies that I wouldn't have imagined would work that ended up working quite well, like this allocation process where you got hired into the company and you chose your team from among the teams that had available headcount, except there's short tangent. When I, when I got there, teams would be over or understaffed compared to their headcount quite regularly. And that was a good thing. Uh, the, the team I eventually ended up joining built infrastructure called culture or infrastructure built the internal tools. And some managers were very happy that they were going to have a headcount allocation tool that would stop teams from like poaching engineers. And uh, this is, this is ridiculous. Like, yes, it can't be random, but if 90% of the engineer, if 90% of the teams have sort of the number of people that we planned for them to have a year ago, that's got to be good enough. Or maybe the right number is 80. But if 100% are adhering to decisions that were made on average six months ago, that can't be right. So that was a, yeah, that was an interesting conversation the, the day that came up. It's like, oh, we can enforce our policies. I'm like, maybe we shouldn't. Given that you spent much of your career before Facebook and during your time at Facebook articulating software processes, and despite that, every pre-established notion that you had about software engineering was called into question in your first week at this new company, does it make you question what are we even doing writing books about software analysis and software practices and extreme programming? Like, Can we really even say, or code complete, can we really even say anything concrete about design practices or Kanban planning or or anything? What can we even be sure of? Well, you, you, you can only be fairly certain of the things you've tried yourself in your context. And only as uh, those decisions are like fish. A month later, you don't, you should definitely question their value. So if you, if you let go of this, well, you know, what's, what should our process be and say, what should our process be for dis, for refining our process, if, if you let go of the need for an answer and you embrace answering as a continuous process, 
then I don't think you can do better than that. So that's part of my answer. The other part of my answer is just because there isn't one way that works, there are a bunch of ways that work really badly. There are a few ways that work well, and I think of them as as attractors in the space of process. There's a few ways that work well, and there are a whole bunch of ways that work horribly. And the first thing to do is identify where you're doing something that's horrible and stop doing that. So yes, I think we can write useful stories about software development process, but their stories are not recipes. And the person listening to the story is going to have to take it in and digest it and apply it in their own specific context. Because every single day at every single company is a different context. So, of course, the answer is going to be different. The inputs are different. Last question. What do you miss most about working at Facebook? Scale. Just that, that leverage. The first, that first feature that I, that I shipped was uh, civil union and domestic partnership were, became relationship types. So you could say, I'm in a domestic partnership with such and so. Last time I checked, that was in use by a million and a half people in their profile. And that ability to have a huge impact on the world, you know, was was intoxicating. Uh, another boot camp project, I just, I looked at the photos code and I thought, eh, something's a little wrong with the data fetching. I can make this more efficient. And I accidentally saved $5 million a year. Like, whoa, as an engineer, being able to to have that kind of leverage is just amazing. At the same time, watching the troubles that Facebook has gone through reminds me that explore and expand are not the same as extract. When you get to extract, there's a big downside. And you have to stop only looking at possible improvements and metrics or however you're going to measure success. And you have to start paying attention to the downsides of your actions in a way that you don't when you're little and scrappy and you got nothing to lose. And I think that's the, that's the challenge that Facebook faces. And, and honestly, if I had to put money on it, I don't, because everybody is so focused on impact and impact is this magic word at Facebook. And if you don't have impact, you're fired. And if you do have impact, you're rewarded. Everybody's looking for that upside those upsides are getting smaller and smaller, but the downsides are getting bigger and bigger. But like culturally, how do you unwind that? I would guess that, they're, that they won't be able to. Kent Beck, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking to you. My pleasure. When I was in college, I was always looking for people to start side projects with. I couldn't find anybody, so I ended up working on projects by myself. And then when I started working in the software industry, I started to look for people who I could start a business with. And once again, I couldn't find anyone, so I started a business myself. And that's the podcast you're listening to. But since then, I've found people to work with on my hobbies and in my businesses And working with other people is much more rewarding than working alone. That's why I started Find Collabs. 
FindCollabs is a place to find collaborators and build projects. On findcollabs.com, you can create new projects or join projects that are already going. There are topic chat rooms where you can find people who are working in areas that you're curious about, like cryptocurrencies or React or Kubernetes or Vue.js or whatever software topic you're curious about. And we now have GitHub integration, so it's easier than before to create a Find Collabs project for your existing GitHub projects. If you've always wanted to work on side projects, or you want to find collaborators for your side projects, check out Find Collabs. I'm on there every day, and I'd love to see what you're building. I'd also love if you'd check out what I'm building. Maybe you'd be interested in working on it with me. Thanks for listening, and I hope you check out Find Collabs. Find Collabs.